there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Today may be a little different. It may not, depending on your perception. Do you recall how Peter Pan lost his shadow? For those of you who don't recall, I'll share it with you. J.M. Barry wrote Peter Pan, well, I don't know when he wrote it, but it was first copyrighted in 1911. He wrote a rather interesting story. My personal opinion is that children's books are really not for children. They are for adults who have lost their inner child to try and put them back in touch with it. Now, in a work sense, you could say that when we shift from our essence at a very early age into this thing that we start to become, this personality, we lose contact, we lose touch with our essence, we lose touch with our inner child. And that works for me. I can easily say that because I experience that to some degree. All right. For those of you who don't know the story, there's Mr. and Mrs. Darling have three children, and that's John and Michael and Wendy. And Peter Pan comes, and he's a boy who is very young, still has his first teeth. I'll pick up. While she slept, she had a dream. She dreamt that the Neverland had come too near, and that a strange boy had broken through from it. He did not alarm her, for she thought she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he is to be found in the faces of some mothers also. But in her dream, he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. There's a film, of course, that separates us from what we actually are. And with some of us, that film is very, very thick. But we never see it because we're busy looking the opposite direction anyway, which is through the five senses at the world. The dream by itself would have been a trifle. But while she was dreaming, the window of the nursery blew open and a boy did drop on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light, no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing. And I think it must have been this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry and saw the boy. And somehow she knew at once that he was Peter Pan. If you or I or Wendy had been there, we should have seen that he was very like Mrs. Darling's kiss. He was a lovely boy, clad in skeleton leaves and the juices that ooze out of trees. But the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When he saw she was a grown-up, he gnashed the little pearls at her. Mrs. Darling screamed, and as if in answer to a bell, the door opened and Nana entered, returned from her evening out. She growled and sprang at the boy, who leapt lightly through the window. Again Mrs. Darling screamed, this time in distress for him, for she thought he was killed, and she ran down into the street to look for his little body, but it was not there, and she looked up, and in the black night, she could see nothing but what she thought was a shooting star. She returned to the nursery and found Nana with something in her mouth, which proved to be the boy's shadow. As he leapt at the window, Nana had closed it quickly, too late to catch him, but his shadow had not had time to get out. Slam went the window and snapped it off. You may be sure Mrs. Darling examined the shadow carefully, but it was quite the ordinary kind. Nana had no doubt of what was the best thing to do with the shadow. She hung it out at the window, meaning... He is sure to come back for it. Let us put it where he can get it easily without disturbing the children. But unfortunately, Mrs. Darling could not leave it hanging out at the window. 
It looked so like the washing and lowered the whole tone of the house. So that's how Peter Pan lost his shadow, for those of you who didn't recall. Now, of course, he had to get it back because what are we without our shadow? We can't live without our own shadow, can we? And, of course, I'm not talking about the shadow that you see on the ground or behind you when you're standing in front of a light. I'm talking about the shadow you that you don't look at, that you don't know about, that you pay no mind to. Really, much like our own shadow. We don't pay much mind to it. People don't go around, as a rule, looking at their shadow. As a matter of fact, I would say that people observe their shadow about as much as they observe themselves which is not very much at all. They may see it accidentally here or there on a very bright day, just like on a very bright day we may actually catch a glimpse of our own shadow. And I'm not talking about a very bright day outside. I'm talking about a very bright experience, a very bright impression, a very bright realization when we then begin to see some of the bits of ourselves that we keep tucked away, hidden away. There's more. She thought of showing it to Mr. Darling, but he was totting up winter greatcoats for John and Michael with a wet towel around his head to keep his brain clear. And it seemed a shame to trouble him. Besides, she knew exactly what he would say. It all comes of having a dog for a nurse. She decided to roll the shadow up and put it away carefully in a drawer until a fitting opportunity came for telling her husband, Ah, me. What we do when we discover our own shadow is we roll it up neatly and put it away in a dark place where we never have to be bothered by it again. Makes sense. Since we can't live without our shadows, and since Peter Pan really couldn't live without his shadow either, he had to get it back, just as we actually, sooner or later, if we're ever going to be all that we are, we need to get our own shadow back. Peter ended up going back to the house to get his shadow. Of course, he waited until evening, And he went back. As he was looking for his shadow, he couldn't find it. And he sat on the floor and he started to cry. Well, that woke Wendy up. And she said, but your mother gets letters. He said, don't have a mother, he said. Not only had he no mother, but he had not the slightest desire to have one. He thought them very overrated persons. Wendy, however, felt at once that she was in the presence of a tragedy. Oh, Peter, no wonder you were crying, she said, and got out of bed and ran to him. I wasn't crying about mothers, he said rather indignantly. I was crying because I can't get my shadow to stick on. Besides, I wasn't crying. Well, for those of you who don't remember, he tried to stick his shadow on with some soap. Once he found it, actually Tinkerbell found the shadow in the drawer, and he tried, but he couldn't get it to stick. So he tried to stick it on with some soap. It has come off, she said. Yes. Then Wendy saw the shadow on the floor looking so draggled, and she was frightfully sorry for Peter. How awful, she said. But she could not help smiling when she saw that he had been trying to stick it on with soap. How exactly like a boy. Fortunately, she knew at once what to do. It must be sewn on, she said, just a little patronizingly. What's sewn, he said. You're dreadfully ignorant. No, I'm not. But she was exulting in his ignorance. I shall sew it on for you, my little man, she said, though he was as tall as herself. And she got out her housewife and sewed the shadow onto Peter's foot. I dare say it will hurt a little, she warned him. Oh, I shan't cry, said Peter, who was already of opinion that he had never cried in his life. And he clenched his teeth and did not cry, and soon his shadow was behaving properly, though still a little creased. Perhaps I should have ironed it, Wendy said thoughtfully, but Peter, boylike, was indifferent to appearances, and he was now jumping about in the wildest glee. Alas, he had already forgotten that he owed his bliss to Wendy. He thought he had attached the shadow himself. How clever I am, he crowed rapturously. Oh, the cleverness of me. So, that's how Peter Pan got his shadow back. 
The problem then becomes like the tail wagging the dog. The shadow is moving us, and we become at the effect of the shadow. We end up acting at the effect of the shadow. Getting detached from our shadow isn't as quick and painless as it was for Peter, but the work can act like the dog that can part us from our shadow. Realizing your ways aren't the only ways, realizing that your views are not the only views, realizing that your opinions are not the only opinions, realizing that your values are not the only values, and again, realizing that yourself is not the only possible yourself is necessary if we want to separate from our shadows. You can't really get rid of your shadow. But separating from the shadow is exactly what's necessary. And how we do it is by realizing that our ways are not the only ways, that our views are not the only views, and so on. This weakens personality, which is like the shadow, but only weakens personality if the realization is genuine, if it's a direct inner perception. If you're told about your shadow, it's not the same thing as seeing your shadow for yourself. Let's take as an example Ms. H. Drance, D-R-A-N-C-E. She says, I've observed myself, but it didn't help. I've observed what I say, but I don't understand what good it does. I've been observing myself for years. I know all about what I say. Clearly, Ms. Drantz doesn't grasp the idea behind self-observation as taught by the work. She's never said, now I wish to change this or that in myself. She doesn't see why she should. Self-observation is a method of self-change or self-exchange. As I've said before, we exchange by changing places with the shadow. As we are now, our I, our sense of self, is in the shadow, and that's why we can't see it, because we can't see what we're being any more than you can see what you're sitting on or see your own eyes. Because self-observation doesn't change her in any way, Miss Drance can't see why she should observe herself. Let's imagine a conversation between Ms. H. Drance and the work. The work says to her, I notice, Ms. Drantz, that whenever inner development is mentioned, you say, people can't change. She replies, that's right. I always say that because it's true. The work asks her, you don't like licorice. Is that right? She's quite right. I never have. The work asks many such questions, and Ms. Drantz replies in the same fashion. Even if she can notice her replies are like a recording, she can't see that she's mechanical that she's automatic, that she's fixed, that she's crystallized. In what is she crystallized? She's crystallized in the belief that her ways are the only ways, that her views are the only views, that her opinions are the only opinions, that her values are the only values, and that herself is the only herself that there could possibly be. So how could she possibly think of changing? Because there's nothing wrong with her to change. And in a sense, we are like Ms. H. Drantz. We are self-satisfied, not because we see ourselves stuck, but we see it as our own intelligent, conscious selves. When we see our views and our opinions and our ways and ourself, we don't see something limited and unintelligent and mechanical. We see our own intelligent, conscious selves. When we look around and someone suggests that that may not be so, we're absolutely certain that they've gone mad. Either that or they're just very mean people who are trying to hurt us by telling lies. Now, some of you, actually probably none of you, have figured out who Ms. H. Drance is. But she is, well, her first name is Hin, and so she is Ms. Hindrance. And what hinders us is just that attitude. 
And so when the work speaks to us and meets his hindrance, that's what happens. It can't get through. It can't be heard. It is blocked. It is stopped. It is argued against. But we don't know we're being argumentative. We don't know we're blocking it and stopping it. We think we're just being our own intelligent, conscious selves and pointing out the very obvious. The work teaches the need for seeing our shadow is moving us. We need to see that it is our shadow that is moving the body, not the body that is responsible for what the shadow does. In our world, we look at a shadow and we say, well, look at that. It does exactly what I do. But in the real world, the shadow says, look at that. It does exactly what I do. And this is our state, imagining that we are the shadow, when the truth is that the shadow is moving us, And the only way we'll ever see that is through uncritical self-observation. The problem with us is is that we can become stuck on autopilot at a very early age. The reason the story is so interesting to me, Peter Pan, is because it's only the children who can go to the Neverland. It's only the children who can fly. It's only the children who can believe. Only the children who can pretend and have it be real. And, of course, some children are better than others at it. And when they get worse and worse and worse at it, then they grow up. Like Miss Hindrance, we say the same things, feel the same things, do the same things over and over and over. And we resist the idea that we should discontinue being so stuck and awakened from our sleep. Think of how you resist the idea that you should stop being so stuck, that you should awaken from your sleep. Someone suggests to you that you should change something. Think of the immediate resistance that rises up in you. And you don't know from where it comes. But you imagine that it's you doing it. When the truth is, it is your shadow doing it to you, moving you. This shadow self that was produced, not by anything real, but all acquired by standing in your own light. Ms. Hindrance is always upset by the same events, always upset by the same prejudices. She's always prejudiced toward the same people. Her likes or dislikes are almost automatic. But rather than seeing this as a problem... She sees this as being consistent and intelligent and wise. Think about it. The people you're prejudiced against was Arthur's question this morning. How do I love the people after being hurt by people my whole life? How do I learn to love people? You don't. You just learn how to be prejudiced against people so that you never let them close enough to have to have them hurt you again. And of course, since you've developed that brilliant strategy, you've never been hurt since. Oh, that little smile on your face tells me that you actually have been hurt since. So our plan doesn't even work. But because we are so unable to see ourselves, we're unable to see that our plan doesn't really work. And we continue with it mindlessly in the same way Ms. Hindrance continues with her prejudices mindlessly, continues with feeling the same feelings and thinking the same thoughts and doing the same things over and over. She seems to have a quiet self-esteem which ensures she'll remain the same because beneath the surface, she strongly approves of herself. When I talk about self-love and self-approval, that's what I'm talking about. Not what you imagine you are, but what you have beneath the surface. The strong approval you have of your ways, your opinions, your thoughts, your way of doing things. Someone suggests to you that perhaps you should do something in a different way. The other night, a couple weeks ago, I was over to Lori's house for dinner and she was doing something with the bread and and I said, well, don't you have a, do you have a rolling pin or don't you have a rolling pin? And Lori said, yes, I have a rolling pin, but I like to do it like this with my hand. And I said, okay. And Patty got two bits of bread that had already been made and she pulled the cover off them and said, see, she made these. 
they turned out fine. So it's like, okay, so not only do we not want to consider changing our ways, people will line up behind us and create a phalanx and say, there's nothing wrong with our ways. I'm not going to try anything different. I'm not going to try anything new. And she agrees with me, and I agree with her. And I said, okay, well, I can see that I need to be out of the kitchen. So I left the kitchen because it's not a wise idea to try to make people wake up because they get annoyed and they're liable to do unpleasant things to you once they're annoyed because annoyed means negative and negative means violence. When people get negative, it's just a matter of time before it finally devolves to violence because violence and negativity are the same thing. If you remain negative, you must be violent. When you are negative, you are already being violent. It's just that usually our violence is in our emotions and in our mind, and we don't usually express it in an outward way until a little bit later if we're pressed. So what I have learned to do is to go away and not press them. And maybe some other day they'll be receptive to looking at themselves and maybe doing something in a different way. Now, there may be nothing wrong whatsoever with making the bread with your hands and not using a rolling pin. No one ever said it was wrong. But when someone suggests that we might do something differently, we imagine that they're saying that we're wrong. And that's when we start to fight. That's when Ms. Hindrance steps in and begins to hinder our ability to grow, to unfold, to see ourselves, to see our own shadow. And that's what I mean by quiet self-esteem, because we strongly approve of ourselves. The girls were fine in the kitchen because the kitchen is their domain, and men don't belong in the kitchen. Forget the fact that the world's greatest chefs are men. Forget that. That has nothing to do with anything. Because we belong in the kitchen and you belong somewhere else in front of the television set watching football or whatever, you can't really come in here and tell us what to do. I mean, I wouldn't suggest that you should do what I'm suggesting. Well, have, you, have you thought about this? Yes, I thought about it and I'm not going to do it because I'm so full of my own self-approval. And this is the way to do it and I've done this forever and this is the way it is and you're a man and you don't know anything, so buzz off. You see how it all works, the prejudice, the self-approval, the self-complacency, my ways, my values. And this is the thing that we need to see. And you can see how painful and how difficult it is just by this little experience. How incredibly easy it was to shoo the man out of the kitchen. How incredibly right it was because he doesn't belong here any more than a square peg belongs in a round hole. It's the natural thing to do and all the women agree. And if all the women don't agree, enough of them agree to get the job done. And what is the job? To stay the same, to not change, to not look at the possibility of my ways are not the only ways, my opinions are not the only opinions, my values are not the only values, my thoughts are not the only thoughts, my is not the only. She and we have a lack of connection resulting in a psychological blindness. What's the lack of connection? Well, the lack of connection is we are not properly connected with our shadow. And because we're not properly connected with our shadow, like Peter Pan, our shadow is rolled up and put in a drawer somewhere where it never sees the light of day and we never see it. And it needs to be connected. But the connection is a very painful process. It's like having your shadow sewn on. The problem with us is how we got disconnected from our shadow is natural in one way, but very unnatural in another way. So we are not connected with our shadow. In other words, we are not aware of our shadow. But in order to become aware of our shadow, we must first become connected with it. Then, after we've become connected with it, we will see what it is, how it operates, and we will have the ability, the power, to separate from it. But not separate from it by breaking it off and rolling it up and putting it in a drawer. That was the unnatural way. The natural way of separating from it is to make it part of you so that you're not 
a shadow and you as two separate things so that you and your shadow are one. You get the idea? Not quite. Okay, well, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Those who easily say they're no good are usually masking the opposite, even from themselves, due to a lack of connection with both sides of themselves, with their shadow side and their other side, the side that they think that they are or imagine that they are. The connection of right and left is missing. Remember last week we talked about the right and the left, the right eye and the right hand causing you to stumble, cutting them off, throwing them away from you. Now we're talking about cutting the shadow off. We all too happily cut our shadow away and hide it in a drawer out of sight. One may appear outwardly cocky, yet within feel inadequate because we've lost sight of our shadow. When we don't see the little nastiness that comes from being out of touch with our shadow, we can feel quite cocky. We can feel quite proud and self-assured. We can feel strong approval for ourselves and self-love and self-liking. But when we begin to see what the shadow moving us makes us do, the self-approval, the self-love, the self-liking begins to lose its power, lose its form, lose its ability to hold sway over our minds. We've got to be disturbed. We've got to be shocked, jolted out of our self-complacency. And this, the work will do if we allow it to enter us. If we don't allow it to enter us, if we just keep it in the intellect, if we just keep it in the mind, if we just study it but don't allow it to enter us, if we don't take the chance of allowing this foreign body to enter us and infect us, then we remain safe in the sterile environment of the intellect where the work can do no harm, where the work can do no work, where the work remains part of our intellectual system without any power to do anything at all except be used by the intellectual system to puff us up even more and to make the false personality stronger and stronger, more and more powerful. We should observe what we observe because observing is difficult and requires conscious effort. We can't observe ourselves mechanically in our sleep, so we should observe what we observe. As Ms. Hindrance found, just observing mechanically in our sleep will change nothing. If she was a bit more clever, she'd notice She always observes only a few things about herself over and over again. And if you're a bit more clever, you will see that you observe only a few things about yourself over and over again. You'll notice that you are negative about this. If this person speaks to you in a certain way, you get defensive or negative. You'll notice that. You'll notice that your husband has the button, knows where the button is, like a remote control, and he can push that button and you'll get angry. Or you'll notice that your wife has the remote control today or she just sat on it and and it made you angry. And your children may have it or the dog may have it, but somebody has it and steps on it or stumbles over it and you get angry. You get negative. You grow dark. You grow agitated. You grow irritated. And you'll notice that these things happen over and over again and those are the things that you observe about yourself. This will not separate you or her from the shadow because observation has become part of her shadow. And in this work, observation becomes part of our own shadow. It becomes part of the false personality. The false personality makes it its own. And it observes only what it wishes to observe. Only the things that it wants to observe. So if someone comes into the kitchen and says, well, have you thought about doing this? The false personality says, of course I have. And I've decided not to. When the truth is, you never really properly observed yourself at all. But instead, you allowed false personality to answer. You allowed the shadow to move the body. The purpose of observing I is to move inwards so more shadow can be seen by it. If it stays on the surface, it will never get out of its own shadow. It will never get out of its own way. If we're not becoming more objective to ourselves, seeing our shadow as what we have taken calmly as ourself, 
we are not working properly. If you have been doing this work for years and you're still observing the same thing over and over again, you're not working properly. Unless you've got some new stuff, you're not observing yourself properly. Now, this can be caused for one of two things. If it falls on the shadow, the false personality, it would be caused for self-recrimination. It would be caused for depression. It would be caused for self-abuse. It would be caused for anger, irritation, and negativity. If, on the other hand, you allow it to fall on something more real, then you will see that it's an opportunity. An opportunity to shine the light in an area where it had not been shined, where you're not accustomed to shining it. We must learn to photograph our shadow and keep an album so we can get to know it from every angle, in every different light, in every different circumstance, sitting, standing, moving, talking, sleeping, whatever. This will shift our feeling of I from the shadow to something more real. As we begin to see the shadow, as we begin to look at it, we will begin to see that it's not us, that it's simply a reflection. And it's not a reflection of us, but a reflection of all the people we've ever known, all the things we've ever acquired in life, all the things we've ever believed. Wrongly, Ms. Hindrance observes what she says, but she doesn't observe her vanity. She doesn't observe her negative states. She doesn't observe her suspicions, her jealousies, her laziness, her imitated attitudes, her fixed opinions, her buffers, and her internal considering. She doesn't observe that stuff because it's her, because it's right, because there's no question about it. Just like there's no question about this is the right way to make the bread. There are other ways. Yes, but this is the way that I want to do it. This is the right way. This is my way. No one is suggesting that this isn't the right way or that there is some righter way. The only suggestion is that we begin to see that our ways are not our own, the only ways, that our values are not the only values, that our opinions are not the only opinions, that how we do things isn't the only way to do them. That's all that's being suggested. But notice how violently we will defend our rights, our ways, our values, our opinions. And I'm suggesting that until we can get a spacer between that until we can get the work in there to begin to separate that, we will not be able to observe ourselves, not properly. We'll observe the same things over and over again. And you'll just grow so much, and then you'll shrink back. You'll fall back into being the shadow and being fine with it, being satisfied, self-satisfied with your self-approval. This is what the work wants from us. Yes, the work wants something from you, a full, well-rounded album of photographs, without which we'll never reach the state possible for those who genuinely work. Those who genuinely work and continue to work, continue to add page after page after page in their album. They don't observe the same thing over and over again. They find new things. As painful as that may be in the beginning, it's not so painful later once we get used to it. But it still can be quite painful when we trip over something, stub our toe over something that we, didn't, we just couldn't have imagined was there. That's usually the most painful. When we're surprised the most is when it's the most painful because it puts us in a state of disbelief. And then we see our shadow and we see that we really did think that we were perfect, that we really did approve of ourselves, that we really did think that our values were the best and our ways were the only ways and our opinions were the only opinions, certainly the only ones that ever matter. When we get into this state, the state that's possible for us, possible for those who genuinely work, the state of being able to take photographs of our shadow and to store them, in an album so that we can take it out and look at them and review them and remind ourselves. That leads to a certain state, the state in which one gets to sometimes stand internally beside one's shadow, separated from the stream of moods, the passion, the negativity, the thoughts, the feelings, the worries, the hatreds, the bitterness, the prejudices with which the shadow is completely identified. 
And being able to stand internally alongside our shadow, separate from it, and see it without having it move us, but to see the shadow doing all of these things, and for us to stand quite still, separated from it, but knowing that it's still ours, and to see it doing what it does, that is true inner freedom. And that is what this work wants from you. The question is, do you want what the work wants for you? Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.